Well, last week we had a joyful and pleasant interruption to our Old Covenant series as we cancelled our evening service and instead we had a baptism service on the beach and we had a great time of worship and celebration together and we were, we were glad for that reason to take a break from our Old Covenant series, but take a break we did. So by way of reminder, as we pick back up with the series, we've just begun looking at the Old Covenant calendar, and we started that subcategory of our larger Old Covenant study two Sunday nights ago by looking at the weekly Sabbath. And tonight we resume with a look at the Passover and the related Feast of Unleavened Bread, which we just read about in Leviticus 23 verses 4 to 8. And in Leviticus 23, verses 4 to 8, it basically says, keep the Lord's Passover. And it basically then says, keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The specific instructions mentioned here is really only that for seven days you shall eat, the, eat unleavened bread. And on the first day you're going to have a holy convocation. And on the seventh day you're going to have a holy convocation. And in between... You're going to present a food offering to the Lord for each of the seven days. Now, the specific offerings are, are outlined in Numbers 28, but we've looked at a lot of the, the offerings and the various types of offerings, and so I'm not really going to get into all of that tonight. As we look at the calendar, the Old Covenant calendar, what we really want to do is understand the significance of the various feasts that are happening throughout the year. So that's what we're focusing on tonight. What is... Leviticus 23 doesn't really tell us what is the Passover, what is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So let's jump in with a review of the context of the first Passover. And those of you who have been with us for a while now should remember that the first Passover was observed on the occasion of the 10th plague. When the Lord was in the process of humbling the Egyptian Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt and exalting himself in their eyes. You will recall that the Lord put plague after plague upon the land of Egypt, gradually revealing more and more of His own power, and also more and more of the distinction that He makes between those who are His people and those who aren't His people. We, we studied all of this at length as we made our way through that section of Exodus a couple of years ago. And in, ele in Exodus 11... Verses 4 and 5, we read this. This is the threat of the 10th plague. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. This is to be the 10th and final and decisive plague, which will release Pharaoh's increasingly feeble grip on the Israelites and now Pharaoh will let God's people go but in Exodus 11 and verse 7 we read this but not a dog shall growl against all against any of the people of Israel either man or beast that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel now, the basis of the distinction that God makes between 
Those who are his people and those who are not his people cannot be the merit of the Israelites. For the Israelites are sinners too. It is not their impressiveness as a people, for they are a small and unimpressive people group. All of this is in Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy 9, which you can go read on your own time if you like. So this small, unimpressive group of sinful people have no real merit or claim to stand on. Why God should make a distinction between them and the Egyptians. So how is it fair? How is it just that God kills the firstborn of the Egyptians, but withholds His hand from the Israelites? Let us frame the issue more precisely. God is not giving the Egyptians something that they don't deserve when He kills their firstborns. Rather, God is withholding from the Israelites something that they do deserve when He does not kill their firstborns. After all, the Israelites are sinners too. Listen, if God had struck down the firstborn of all the people who dwelt in the region of Egypt, who could accuse God of injustice? In fact, if God had struck down not just the firstborns, but all the people, Egyptians and Israelites alike, man, woman, and child, and absolutely annihilated the entire population in the whole land of Egypt, in the whole land of Goshen. Who could accuse God of injustice? Let's take that a step further. If God killed everyone in the world right now and sent them all to hell for their sins, who could accuse God of injustice? The problem to be resolved in the tenth plague then as it pertains to the justice of God, is not a problem pertaining to his killing of the firstborns of the Egyptians. The problem to be resolved in the tenth plague, as it pertains to the justice of God, is actually in the sparing of the Israelite firstborns. When the destined day of reckoning comes upon the land of Egypt, and the Lord goes through the land to punish sin... How can he justly pass over the Israelites? And more broadly, how is it fair? How is it just for God to pass over any sinners instead of giving us all what our sins deserve? Can you see that if God simply passed over unbelief, pardon me, can you see that if God simply passed over believers? both Old Testament and New Testament, without ever punishing our sin, there would be a justice issue. God cannot pour out His wrath on one person and say justice has been done without sparing someone else and not being liable to the accusation that justice has not been done. If punishment is justice then punishment must be served in every case, or it is injustice. We understand, in the case of unbelievers, 
that God does not ultimately spare them, but merely defers punishment to a later time when they suffer for their sins in hell. Now, it is easy enough then for us to see the justice of God with respect to unbelievers in the fact that He defers punishment as opposed to sparing from punishment altogether. So that's not really problematic for us. However, in the case of believers, God does not punish us personally for our sins. He passes over us. How is this fair? How is this just? Could not the man or woman in hell look up, so to speak, from their place of torment and point at one of us Christians and ask the reasonable question, well, what about him? What about her? Why must I suffer for my sin while God has passed over him or while God has passed over her and did not punish her as her sins deserved. We see symbolized in the observance of the first Passover upon the occasion of the tenth plague a paradigm for how God justly passes over those whom He chooses not to punish. So let's look more closely at the symbolism of the various elements of the Passover. Recall again what God threatens. In Exodus 11, 4-7, He says, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So, it is God's declared intention not to kill the firstborn of the Israelites. However, there is a necessary middle step before God actually passes over the Israelites. In Exodus chapter 12 and verse 7, in the midst of varied instructions about the event that is about to transpire, the Israelites are instructed to take some of the blood that is of the lamb that they are preparing to eat and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses. And in verses 12 and 13 of Exodus 12, we see the rationale for this. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Again, in Exodus 12, 23, we see the same thing repeated. The Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So, 
the destroyer is passing through all the land of Egypt, including Goshen. The Lord is going down each and every street. He's going he's to be passing through every gap in the land. He's dealing with the whole land of Egypt. And his sole concern is whether or not a lamb has been slain in the place of his otherwise intended target. Either the firstborn will die or a lamb will take his place. So God essentially says, or, or he implies really, you Israelites really and truly deserve to have your firstborn killed too. But I wish to spare you. Therefore a substitute must die in your place. Let a lamb die in your place. Hide yourself behind its blood and I will pass over you and not visit the wrath that you also deserve upon you having reckoned the Lamb to have borne it in your place. And it is this principle that God is highlighting by requiring His people to take shelter behind the blood of a substitute. God wants His people to understand His mercy. God wants His people to understand that He is willing to spare. That He will make a distinction between those who are His people and those who aren't His people. God wants His people to understand His mercy, but not at the expense of His justice. God's mercy is not an unjust mercy, akin to a grandparent doting on a misbehaving grandchild. No offense, no shade being thrown to the grandparents. <laughs> God's mercy is not an unjust mercy, like a doting grandparent overlooking a misbehaving grandchild's sin. Rather, God's mercy and God's justice inform and complement one another within the biblical storyline as they each reveal an aspect of who God is. The central and unmistakable message of the 10th plague then is that when the day of reckoning comes, only those who have taken shelter behind the blood of a lamb who was slain, will be spared. And the Passover lamb, which is to be eaten, and whose blood was to be applied to the doorpost of the house that first Passover night, clearly prefigures Christ Jesus, who is the propitiation for the sin of God's people. Jesus dies in the place of God's people bearing the just wrath of God so that God can be just in passing over your house and my house. So that God can be just in passing over those whom He intends not to kill without punishing them personally for their sin. The Passover lamb symbolized then that atonement is a necessity if God is to make a just distinction between His people and others. And the unleavened bread was symbolic too. 
it was at least commemorative of their hasty departure out of Egypt that first Passover night, not having time to leaven the dough in their troughs, and of their distress and want of savory bread, as John Gill says. After all, an important function of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread is, as Exodus 13 and verse 3 says, that the Israelites remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out of this place. So the reenactment of the eating of the lamb and the unleavened bread would play a role in helping the Israelites remember that sudden deliverance that God worked for them when they didn't even have time to leaven their bread. Reenacting it is going to help them remember. So it's at least that. But more than that, Paul, the apostle, many years later, makes leaven representative of sin in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. And he, he reasons that we shouldn't tolerate sin in the church, for a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Rather, he says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. Then he says this, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. What festival is it that's on the heels of the Passover lamb being sacrificed? The Feast of Unleavened Bread. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the cleansing of the houses from leaven, they they were supposed to get leaven out of their houses and keep leaven out of their houses for a week. And their refusal to indulge in it for a time eventually came to be symbolic of the purity that God requires from His people alongside their partaking of His salvation. They must eat the lamb, but they must not eat the leaven. You can't have the lamb and the leaven. How much did the Israelites understand of that last aspect? Probably very little. After all, see if you can go work it out from the text of Exodus 11 through 13, or Leviticus 23, which we're looking at tonight, or Numbers 28, and other early Old Testament texts that deal with the Passover. The reality is it's just not spelled out as clearly as that in early biblical revelation. But God so often does that, doesn't He? God says or does something that people don't understand immediately. And then later He goes back and backfills it with meaning. This seems to be the case with the Feast of Unleavened Bread also. Maybe the Israelites didn't understand it at that time. But we can say with certainty from our vantage point, on this side of Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 5, we can say with certainty that the Feast of Unleavened Bread eventually came to be symbolic of the purity that God requires of His people 
alongside their partaking of his salvation. They must eat the lamb, but they must not eat the leaven. You can't have the lamb and the leaven. And this leads us pretty directly to application. We are to eat of our Passover lamb, Christ Jesus. Matthew Henry points out that the Passover lamb was killed not to be looked upon only, but to be fed upon. So we must by faith make Christ ours as we do that which we eat. And we must receive spiritual strength and nourishment from Him as from our food. And have delight and have satisfaction in Him as we have in eating and drinking when we are hungry and thirsty. If we are to be passed over It is not enough simply to know that there is a Passover lamb. If we are to be passed over, it is not enough simply to understand the doctrine that a Passover lamb must be slaughtered and his blood applied to the doorpost and the lintel of the home. If we are to be passed over, we must eat and drink. Each of us. Of the Passover meal. We must apply the blood of the Passover lamb to the doorpost and the lintel, so to speak. We must personally eat and drink of Christ by faith. And we must plead His blood as our propitiation. And ask God for that passing over of our sins. Now, this does not mean that you must participate in the Lord's Supper to be saved. This is where people's minds automatically go, right? Eating and drinking of Christ. Nor does this mean that the Lord's Supper can save you. Listen listen here and follow, because this is an important distinction. An important concept that I'm about to enumerate. Just as the first Passover night was a historical event, a unique, unrepeatable historical event, God didn't rescue the Israelites from Egypt over and over and over and over again each time by slaughtering a Passover lamb and applying it to the doorposts. That happened once. There was one unique, unrepeatable historical event which happened. But... A memorial meal was then attached to that one unique, unrepeatable historical event. So, the slaying of the truer and greater Passover lamb, Jesus, was a unique, unrepeatable historical event. You're not saved over and over and over and over every Sunday as Jesus is crucified afresh over and over for the salvation of your sins. That's not how it works. It's a unique, unrepeatable historical event. Just as the Exodus was a one-time thing, so the 
the dying of Christ Jesus for the sins of His people was a unique, one-time, historical thing. But as there was a memorial meal attached to the first unique, unrepeatable, historical Passover night, so there is a memorial meal attached to the unique, unrepeatable, historical event of Christ, our Passover lamb, dying for the sins of His people at Calvary. It is, er, pardon me, it was the application of the blood of that first Passover lamb, that first night, to the doorposts of their homes that saved the Israelites in the land of Goshen. That's what saved them. From the destroyer who went through at midnight that night, it was taking the blood of that Passover lamb and putting it on the doorposts. And then they commemorated that over and over again in the memorial meal. Likewise, it is the application of the blood of our true Passover lamb, Jesus, to our lives once that saves us. But we commemorate that over and over and over in the memorial meal. That first transaction, applying the blood of Jesus to our lives. Eating and drinking of our Passover lamb, as it were. That happens inwardly, by faith. Not outwardly, by means of our taste buds. And the chomping of our jaws and and our digestive system. Listen to the Belgic Confession on this point. Just as truly as we take and hold the sacrament in our hands and eat and drink it with our mouths, by which our life is then sustained, so truly we receive into our souls for our spiritual life the true body and true blood of Christ, our only Savior. We receive these by faith, which is the hand and mouth of our souls. So our eating of that Passover meal and our application of the blood of Christ to the doorposts of our, ourselves, our, our homes, as it were, is something that happens with the hands and mouths of our hearts. Faith. It's that transaction, that eating and drinking of Christ Jesus by faith, which saves. Then having already been saved by that first Passover lamb, the ancient Jews were given a memorial meal. And us, having already been saved by our Passover lamb, Jesus, eating and drinking of Him by faith, we are given a memorial meal. So the subsequent, repeated memorial meals weren't salvific for the Israelites. The way that slaughtering and partaking in that first Passover lamb in Egypt, that first Passover night truly had been. So the subsequent repeated memorial meals that we partake in as we observe the Lord's Supper aren't salvific for us. 
as the death of Jesus was, and our eating and drinking and imbibing Christ by faith at the outset of our Christian lives. So we eat the first time of our Passover lamb, Jesus, inwardly by faith, but then we eat the memorial meal again and again outwardly to remember. God wants every generation to know about the great salvation that He worked for His people. So He institutes things that will make kids ask questions. In Exodus 13 and verse 14, we read this. When in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? Hmm. God builds opportunities into the calendar and into the prescribed practices of His people in order for them to talk about His great salvation with their children. And God doesn't want the adults to forget either. As I made the point a couple of weeks ago, it's not that we would intellectually forget. It's not that those who came out of Egypt that first Passover night would one day find themselves in the wilderness and be like, what? How did we get here? What happened? Last thing I remember, we were in Egypt. Right? It's not as if they would intellectually forget. But again, our hearts are prone to wander. Right? And you, you did see the Israelites saying things like, it was better off for us in Egypt. Right? Man, back in the day, we sat by pots full of meat and these fresh vegetables, and now here we are in this stinking desert. You see how our hearts forget, right? And so God wants us to rehearse His great salvation. So He commands, remember, and He builds reflection into the calendar and into the prescribed practices of His people. God wants His deeds recounted and rehearsed and passed on to the next generation. And so God instituted a memorial of His passing over of the Israelites because of the blood of a lamb. And God instituted a memorial of His truer and greater passing over of all His people, old covenant and new, because of the blood of a truer and greater lamb. And so hence, we now observe the Lord's Supper as a memorial meal of what God has done for us, passing over our sins because of the blood of the Lamb. And like these first memorials, the memorial of the Lord's Supper causes kids to ask questions too. Before kids ever ask what the preacher said or meant. Before kids ever ask about the lyrics to the songs we sing. They want to know about what's in that little cup. Uh, uh, what is it? Why are we eating this bread? What's going on here? We have an opportunity at the communion table not only to remind our own hearts of the saving work of God, but also to declare unto the next generation the saving work of God. Now, before I close, I want to circle back to remind you of what I said a few minutes ago. Namely, that we can say with certainty from our vantage point on this side of Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 5, that the Feast of Unleavened Bread eventually came to be symbolic of the purity that God requires of His people 
alongside their partaking of his salvation. They must eat the lamb, but not the leaven. They couldn't have both the lamb and the leaven. And again, they may not have understood all of that in the early Old Testament scriptures. But through the mouth of the apostle, God goes and backfills that with meaning and with symbolism, which we ought to read into it then and understand that this is God's intention to communicate this truth to us. What this means, of course, for us then, is that we can't eat of Jesus, represented by the Lamb, and also eat of sin too. Eating the Passover lamb involved the simultaneous putting away of leaven. So, partaking of Jesus involves putting away sin. So decide, so to speak, each of you in this room, whether you want to be an Israelite or an Egyptian, decide whether you want to take shelter behind the blood of the Lamb or not. But understand this, that if you decide to eat the Passover Lamb, you must also decide to give up leavened bread. You can't continue in sin that grace may increase. You can't feast on Jesus and feast on sin. You can't have your cake and eat it too. And you can't have your lamb and your leaven too. Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 5 that Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been slaughtered. And then urges us to keep a feast of unleavened bread of sorts. And to put away sin from us, as the Jews of old put away literal leaven. Here's the big idea of tonight's message, then, in a nutshell. And I worked hard to get this simpler, but I couldn't. I think there's just too much, too much complexity and too much nuance for me to give you like five words. Alright, so let me give you like two or three sentences. This is as simple as I can boil it down. We are to eat of the Passover lamb, our Passover lamb, Christ Jesus, both with respect to the historical event, which is the basis of our salvation. We do that by faith. And then as represented again and again in the memorial meals. And we are to be marked by purity without the leaven of sin, just as the Old Covenant Israelites put away leaven from their houses. The Old Covenant feast, as everything else in the Old Covenant, was instructive for us and foreshadowed and typified and symbolized spiritual realities. And these are those. We actually need to be passed over and it's because of the blood of Jesus that we may be passed over. So we need to apply His blood to ourselves. And then we commemorate that again and again at the Lord's table. 
But we need to understand that even as we eat of the lamb, we need to stop eating of the leaven, which represented sin. And so we need to come and eat of Christ Jesus, put away sin from us. This is a picture of what it means to be God's people at this stage in redemptive history. This is what it looks like. And this is what was foreshadowed and, and, and taught through the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread.